Well, good day, everybody. Welcome to the Lifetime Trainer Talks podcast. And I can't wait today to bring you Dr. Michael Mash, who is the owner and founder of the Barbell Rehab, a continuing education company that's dedicated to helping fitness and rehab professionals improve and manage you know, how to use these barbells. And, you know, so, so many times it's a scary thing, but, um, in the conversations that I've had with, with Dr. Mike, it's been amazing just to understand how little tweaks can go a long way and how to, you know, just encourage people and get people to get more comfortable underneath the barbell. But he's also a doctor of physical therapy, uh, creator of the barbell rehab method, which we'll talk a lot about today. And at the end of the day, he's made it his, his life's mission to reduce the barriers to strength training and encourage its use and application on a global level. So welcome to the show, Dr. Mike. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Super excited to chat with you, all things injury risk reduction and performance. Well, and, and it's such a valid, you know, for the last six months or maybe not six months, four months, I've been literally in front of new trainers that start with us. Um, and testing them out on their application of programming, as well as the um, application of an in-session experience. And I can't tell you how much the content that you have is needed and how to teach people how to make minor tweaks to get people to actually succeed in the weight room versus making them feel like they can't do anything. So I'm really excited to kind of get into this, this content. Yeah, that's exactly what we're all about here. I mean, learning how to do these basic movements like squats, deadlifts, bench press is one thing, but when you're on the gym floor with that client and they say, Hey, this doesn't feel so great for my shoulder. Do you know how to make those changes like immediate changes? So that's what we're all about is providing trainers with these, uh, like a toolbox of changes, quick changes that they can make that can cause drastic reductions in pain. Yeah, and, and, and so then what happens too, just to, I mean, maybe we're jumping the gun a bit, but it's, it's such a great content <laughs> is that most trainers, what I've seen is they'll take them completely off. Okay. Well, let's go do this. Well, what does that say to the client? Right? Like I yeah. get frustrated. Oh, I just failed. Maybe I shouldn't do this. And the next thing you know, they cancel on you. And then they tell you it's too much money. And it had nothing to do with that. It just the communication and the interaction, you know, with the right means, but the, in the right intent, but it just doesn't come off that way. So yeah, that's so powerful. Well, first, would you mind just diving into, give us a quick overview of your background and, and really what was the thing that spurred you to say, I think there's a big market here and I want to create this content to help, help fitness professionals and even therapists. Yeah. So this all started back in high school for me. I was a baseball player. I was your typical 125 pound six foot one scrawny baseball player. And at that point it was my sophomore year and my school was assigned an athletic trainer. And I said, how do I throw faster? And he put me in a rack and he said, all right, we're going to do some rack pulls. And I said, what? We're going to lift this barbell with a 45 on each side. And that's going to make me throw faster. And he said, yeah. So what ended up happening was I put on like 30 pounds of mass that season and I did so much better the next year. And I said, okay, maybe, maybe it was onto something here. And what ended up happening was I ended up falling in love with lifting weights more than actually playing baseball. And what ended up happening is back in like when I was a kid through too many curveballs, ended up hurting my shoulder. So couldn't pitch in college, but I ended up going to physical therapy school because I enjoyed weightlifting so much. And I saw how it can help reduce pain. So I put the two and two together. I said, okay, well, we're going to go to physical therapy school and um, really start to incorporate these um, concepts of lifting. So I went to PT school 
And I thought that we would have a ton of lifting and working out in the program. And it wasn't quite there. And I said, okay, we're missing something. Where are we going to learn all about how to lift weights? And um, they said, well, you'll get that in your, your clinicals when you go and work in different settings. And again, we still didn't see it. So I got out in the clinic and I saw how much of a gap there was, how much at that time, six, seven years ago, it's getting better now in the physiotherapy world. A lot of physical therapists are starting to implement uh, strength and conditioning principles into practice. Um, but when I was in PT school, it, it was unheard of. So I made it a mission to, okay, I am going to incorporate strength and conditioning principles into physical therapy practice. So my first four years of practice, I worked full-time at a hospital outpatient orthopedics where I saw a ton of older deconditioned adults and worked with a ton of joint replacements and surgeries. And I saw just how beneficial it was to get these older folks loaded and stronger. And so basically all throughout that time, I was also running barbell rehab on the side as a cash-based practice where I was taking on-site clients and doing some online coaching. And then eventually, as I started to scale back on my um, working in the clinic, I started a one-day live workshop and it just took off. It took off. And I always knew that my, the favorite aspect of what I enjoyed about being a physical therapist was the education. So that's what really happened. We now have four online courses through Barbell Rehab and our two-day live course. And it's, I haven't looked back ever since. You know, what I've seen, uh, you know, over the last 30 years I've been in the industry is, is so many of the physical therapists of the world basically deciding, hey, listen, I love this, but there's a gap. And I can actually make oh, yeah. such an influence training trainers on some of these concepts uh, versus even even the therapists. It's, it's you know, if you look at all the, the major education, you know, a lot of them started it, or they're physical therapists that are creating a lot of the education. So I love this new wave. So, you know, the, the, you said your mission is to help athletes overcome pain and improve performance. And, you know, I know two components, those two components are kind of like pain and performance. They're kind of on the opposite yeah. continuum, but yet you bring them together. Would you mind explaining, you know, maybe a little bit more about the barbell rehab and, and how you accomplish those things? Yeah. So this, this gap from rehab to performance, in my opinion, is happening on both ends of the professions. So Physical therapists, in my opinion, aren't trained enough on how to coach these lifts. So when somebody comes into a physical therapist, say, oh, I hurt my back doing squats or I hurt my um, shoulder doing the bench press. The physical therapist does not, by nature, in school, have the knowledge for how to successfully work with this person. Sure, we're taught manual therapy skills, assessment and diagnosis, but as far as exercise prescription and modification, most physical therapists don't know how to coach a bench press. So from that aspect, from the physical therapy side of things, we're teaching physical therapists more about these lifts. How do you take an athlete that is having pain with the bench press, that's having pain with the uh, deadlift and use your clinical knowledge to dig a layer deeper and help them get back to it. On the flip side, we really hit it from the personal training side because I'm a big fan of avoiding over-medicalization. Too many people are getting unnecessary surgeries. Too many people are being told, hey, I have shoulder pain with a bench press. You need to go to an orthopedic to get a surgical consult. Nine times out of 10, this is not the route we need to go. 
So what we do from the trainer side is we're teaching these trainers how to make these slight modifications to these lifts, because take, for example, somebody that's dealing with hip pain during squats. Sometimes all it takes is a slight stance adjustment to completely eradicate the hip pain. And that's something a personal trainer can do totally hands off. You're not diagnosing. You're not telling the client you have hip pain because you have X. You're simply making a modification to their form that can cause a drastic reduction in pain. So by closing the gap on both sides of the thing, on both sides of the equation, exposing healthcare providers to lifting mechanics and exposing personal trainers to some principles of rehab, we now can close this gap where we take an athlete in pain and we don't have to shut them down. That is the number one thing that we are all about in the absence of severe red flag symptoms, like full body sickness or something horrible going wrong. There's always a way to train in the presence of pain and rest just isn't the answer. So that's what we're really doing here. Closing the gap from both sides of the spectrum. Well, and, and what I also want to bring up, cause I think so many times when we hear performance, we automatically think, you know, whatever athlete you're thinking of or, yeah. or high level performance. But at the end of the day, there's more and more people that are getting older. The population is getting bigger and their performance is golfing, playing pickleball, you know, doing whatever the thing that they love to do is. And, and, and it, it has a huge application obviously to that group, but yet, you know, when you start looking at people who maybe have never lifted before and you start taking the barbell, it yeah. kind of, it, it, there's a fear factor and, you know, that's, that's not for me. That's for, you know, somebody who's like 25 years old or 30 yeah. years old, who wants to be a, you know, college, college sport athlete or a pro athlete. How do you talk to that? Like, you know, why is it that let's call it a senior healthy aging population mm -hmm. might benefit from the barbell work? Gotcha. So that's actually a big misconception about my brand. Everybody thinks that barbell rehab helps power lifters. We help everybody. Our goal is to decrease the barrier to strength training. So I think a lot of this comes from the misconception, just like you said, Jason, how, oh, barbells are for world-class powerlifters and for bodybuilders. And so there's people that the second the barbell comes into the equation, we're automatically assuming heavy weight, but guess what? We can scale this thing as a standard barbells weighs 45 pounds or 20 kilos, depending on what barbell you have. They make barbells even lighter than that. So when it comes down to it, taking an older individual, and I want to touch on that for a second because you brought it up. One of the biggest problems we see with aging is sarcopenia and muscle loss. And you and I know how difficult it is to do a one rep max squat, right? But some of these folks, as they get older, standing up out of a chair is a one rep max squat for them. No wonder they're so tired. They're doing one rep max squats all day long just to stand up from a chair. So in my opinion right now, at least where my opinion is, where the evidence lies, there is no better way to prepare our healthy aging population for the demands of aging and the demands of life by taking these patterns they do every day, squatting, picking things up off the ground and loading it. My bias is going to be a barbell. Why a barbell? Because it's something that we can start low and go slow and we can incrementally dose. Start somebody on a training bar. Maybe it's only 15 pounds. Guess what we can do that 15 pound barbell. We can add a two and a half pound weight on either side, right? Now they're at 20. So it gives us this dosing capability to start low and go slow. And it's just, I've, I've seen 
things from people not being able to stand up out of a chair, people not being able to bend over and pick their grandkid up off the floor to now they're squatting with 75 pounds on their back and picking up 135 pounds off the floor. Tell me that doesn't create a resilient mindset in our healthy aging population. And, and I, I, you know, what I love that you just said is the mindset, because I think we're, we're always looking at it a lot of times from a trainer's perspective, we're looking at it from the improved strength, you know, improve, you know, picking up kids, all the, all the groceries, mm-hmm. but what about the psyche? What about the Ooh. confidence? What about the getting past? And, and obviously there's a lot of communication and that could be for another, another podcast of, of how do you communicate to help somebody? Um, and, unless you have some ways, I'd love to hear like, how have you been able to take that population and maybe say some things to get them to be less afraid of yeah. that? Because at the end of the day, their confidence and their psyche will dramatically, you know, allow them to then, you know, even do more things into the future and, and take a bit more, what we'll call calculated risk. Yeah. So one of my favorite ways to do that is um, I always say one set of deadlifts, although one set of deadlifts might not be enough to completely cause a robust physiological adaptation, one set of deadlifts can certainly cause a robust psychological adaptation. So what I end up doing, let's take somebody maybe that's older, deconditioned, and maybe has a little bit of back pain. Nothing severe, but they don't trust their back. They think it's broken. They think it's fragile. They're afraid to move. They're afraid to bend this. We see this tons and tons of times. If I can convince that person on day one to get into a comfortable, take take a trap bar, put a 10 pound bumper on each side. So maybe we're looking at 65 pounds overall. Um, and I convince them, Hey, can I, I'm going to show you a lift. It's going to be lightweight. It's going to be safe for you. I coach them into a comfortable hip hinge pattern, have them do three to five reps, nothing crazy, nothing like 15 to 20. And then after they're done with those three to five reps, I ask them how it felt. They'll usually say it felt pretty good. And here's the kicker. I say, you just lifted 75 pounds off of the ground. You're not as broken as you think you are. That one sentence, then the light bulb goes off and you're like, you know what? You're right. And that is how I get the buy-in early. If you can just show people, I always say lifting weights often shows people how strong they already are in in addition to building strength. So that's where I really start to hit that psychological aspect where people have this fragility mindset and it all comes down to that ability. Can you find a form and an exercise that works for them? Otherwise, if we put everybody into the same form, if it hurts for them, then we're just going the other way. Right. So that's why it's important to be, to have these modifiable factors and to have different options for these folks. Well, you know what I'd love to do, there, there, there's two things. We had some conversation, obviously, before the podcast, and, and you mentioned kind of the importance, and, and you mentioned even in the beginning of the podcast, of how can I make slight tweaks or slight adjustments mm-hmm. to these lifts? Now, I, I want to get into that, but I think what might be important, if you wouldn't mind, and obviously, you've got all this education, so mm-hmm. we haven't we have 45 minutes to, to go through this. Um, but one thing before we get into the adjustments that I would love if, if you could is let's just take squat, maybe deadlift and, and, and bench. Is there for each one of those one or two, like of the most common things that you see people doing wrong there and what, what one tweak would be to make, you know, a better adjustment for that, you know, and I know it's kind of a broad question, but yeah. for sure. Um, I want to preface it by saying if, if I'm working with a beginner, I'm more worried about it being comfortable than it looking perfect. So form is something I certainly, certainly look at, but it's something that I work with them 
as I'm working with them. Because if we make it, if we try and make it look perfect on day one, that can often make them all frazzled. You know that, right? So let's take somebody who I'm working with and um, we want to start optimizing form. For the squat, one of the biggest things I'm looking at is is their, is their torso position changing all over the place during the squat? So one thing is we tend to see a lot, especially in people that don't trust their backs, what they'll do is they'll descend way too upright. And then at the bottom, they'll fold over before they ascend upright again. This is pretty, pretty common um, because as you know, people have different femur lengths, different torso lengths. So a little bit of forward lean during the squat is actually going to optimize it. So getting in, but people are afraid of that. So one of the things I end up doing is for our folks who look terrified under the barbell and are squatting down with a perfectly erect torso, I'm going to encourage a little bit of uh, forward torso lean, because the last thing we want during a squat is the torso all over the place in changing positions. So that's one thing I see with the squat. And the other thing is not creating enough core stiffness. In, in PT school, we were taught that the best way to breathe is to inhale on the way down and to exhale on the way up. That just doesn't work when we start lifting and especially with heavier weights. So getting people to take a big breath and hold it during their lifts, the Valsalva maneuver is what we teach. And that in and of itself can help people feel stronger, more stable, increase intra-abdominal pressure. So for squat, I'd say changing torso angles and not creating enough core stiffness. Would it be inaccurate on the squat is to say, you know, a lot of people, a lot of organizations teach where kind of the, the, the angle of the lower leg should be kind of equal to the, the angle of the, the hip to, to shoulder position as you're coming down. Is that accurate or no? Um, Sometimes, but not always. Like if we take like if we take a low bar squat, that's going to be more of a vertical shin and more of an incline torso. And if we look at a front squat, you're actually going to have the opposite. You're going to have more of a forward shin and an upright torso. Um, So I don't always think that holds true one to one. The main thing I'm looking for, regardless of squat variation, whether it's a safety bar front, high bar, low bar, is we want that barbell centered over the middle of the foot from the side view. So that's more of what I'm looking at versus trying to get a matching torso and shin angle. Because if that barbell is centered over the middle of the foot, then we know we're in balance. So that's more what I'm looking at. Awesome. Uh, How about uh, bench press? Yeah. So for the bench, one of the biggest things that we're looking at is um, that bar position. So a lot of people think that there is only one exact touch point that you have to hit, but it's a range. So I don't want somebody bringing that barbell too low on their chest because then they're going to hit sticking points and they're not going to be able to get it back up over the shoulder. But I also don't want them bench pressing the whole way up to their neck. Um, So what we teach in the course is this bar position is a little bit of a range. Wider grips are going to have more of a higher touch point. Narrower grips are going to have more of a lower touch point. Um, but we don't want to go into the extremes. And then the other thing, which is probably even bigger is keeping the shoulder blades squeezed. People don't create when they're new to bench pressing. A lot of people don't create enough scapular retraction. So when we're bench pressing, we want to keep those shoulder blades nice and squeezed the entire rep doing that is going to puff the chest up. It's going to put the shoulder in the most mechanically efficient position, and it's just going to make them feel stronger and more stable. So I'm optimizing bar position and scapular position on the bench press. And then the, 
the, the scariest one that most people think about is the deadlift. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the deadlift, right. That's the, the disc herniator. You deadlift too many times, your disc is going to shoot out of your back and squirt all over the wall, like a jelly donut, right? That's what we always hear. <laughs> so what we're looking at there, two biggest things probably is incorrect starting position of the barbell to start. The barbell should be starting over the middle of your foot. A lot of people start with the barbell too far away from them. And the reason why they're starting with the barbell too far away with them, it's going to go hand in hand with my other fault is that they're trying to squat the weight off of the ground. They're trying to sit their hips too low. They're trying to squat their deadlifts. And when we get into this squatting style deadlift, the hips drop too low, the barbell gets pushed forward. And now we're in a very mechanically inefficient position. With the hips too low, the hamstrings are on slack. So the hamstrings aren't able to really do their job of hip extension during the deadlift. And with the barbell too far forward, now we've just increased the moment arm to the low back and we're making the low back work more, work harder. So it's people sit down on their deadlifts because they think it's safer. They think, oh, if I get my hips real low, right? We hear this in like ergonomics, like lift with your legs, not your back. But when it comes to a barbell deadlift, the optimal position is going to be those hips a little bit higher. That brings the barbell closer to them and it puts some tension on the hamstrings and that's a win-win. So that's probably the biggest thing I'd see on deadlifts. Awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, obviously there's a hell of a lot more information that you'll get, you know, both in the, the virtual and or the, the live. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with that, ha, ha, can you go back, if we go back through those again and, and just talk about what have been some of the, you know, maybe one or two of the most effective tweaks, obviously it's, it, it's a wide range because everybody's yep. slightly different, but just the more common things that you've seen from a tweak standpoint of each one of those. Yeah. Um, Let's start with bench press. Yeah. Um, so when somebody tells me I have shoulder pain during the bench press, I have questions because there are so many different tweaks that you can make. The number one modifiable factor or form tweak that you can make with the bench press, in my opinion, is going to be the grip width because somebody can have severe shoulder pain with a narrow grip bench press and have no pain with a wide grip bench press and vice versa. Somebody can have severe pain with a wide grip bench and very little or to no pain with a narrow grip bench press. So modifying where you grip the barbell, in my opinion, has one of the biggest impacts on pain reduction on the bench press. Wider grips are going to be more chest dominant and they're going to be a higher touch point. And narrower grips are going to be more triceps anterior delt dominant and going to have a lower touch point. So different types of shoulder pain respond better to different grip widths. And I want to dispel a myth here because what I've, what I was taught five to 10 years ago, and what's still floating around the internet is that if you have shoulder pain, do a close grip bench press, but it doesn't always hold true for people that have really cranky anterior shoulders, like more of that biceps tendon, more often than not, they respond better to widening their grip during the bench press. It's people that have the, the rotator cuff related shoulder pain, more of that pain on the side of the shoulder. Those are the folks that end up responding better to a narrow grip, but changing the grip changes the arm slot, changes the shoulder abduction angle, and it can just work wonders for shoulder pain during the bench press. One other thing, if you wouldn't mind is, is 
Can you, can you get into just the different variations of incline, decline, and, and or flat? And mm-hmm. if there's some slight tweaks there, you know, just in general, where bar should lie or, or different positioning in their hands? Yeah. So now we just throw a different equation. I mean, different variable in the equation, right? So now we have two variables of grip width and incline. And I always say somebody can have, just like with grip width, somebody can have severe shoulder pain with a flat barbell bench press, but you can make such a slight modification to a 10 to 15 degree incline, and it can instantly eradicate the shoulder pain. Now there's different hypotheses as to why such slight adjustments can cause such drastic changes in pain. And I'll give you both of them because I think it's a combination of two. One hypothesis would say, Hey, we're changing the angle. We're changing the biomechanics. We're changing the stress that's put through the joint. So therefore you are offloading tissues that are sensitized and you're shifting that stress to tissues that are often underworked so that you, how you change the perception of pain. So I think it has a lot to do with that. And that's what we see with the change in the incline. You see just a slight change in the stress on the shoulder joint, different pain, uh, different uh, pain production. Now, the other theory, which is one that I'm looking into more now is this theory more of, uh, more of a pain science theory called predictive processing. And I'm not going to go the whole way down this rabbit hole, but basically when we do something over and over again, our brain creates a shortcut. So think about if you've been bench pressing with shoulder pain for six months, your brain now knows I'm laying on this bench it create, and I'm going to have pain becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, but guess what happens when you incline that bench 10 degrees, you break that processing, you break that shortcut. Now your brain's like, oh my gosh, this is a different exercise. So now we've introduced a variable. It makes it different. It's not that old painful exercise. We break that shortcut and now we can build new shortcuts. So I think the combination of this psychological aspect and the true biomechanical change is why we see such drastic reductions in pain with such minor changes in form. And, and, you know, the, there's a concept that I learned on progress, or, uh, pattern overload of, of, you know, doing the same thing the same way over and over and over and over again. Have you seen that also become part of an issue that potentially could lead to um, pain, you know, or overuse? Yeah. So I think um, one of my instructors, Dr. Ben Geierman, uses the concept of sometimes if you poke the same spot over and over again, it can get cranky. And what instead of just stopping the poking altogether, we still need to poke, but let's just poke it from a little bit of a different angle, right? Because if we stop poking, then you detrain, the pain will go away. It'll certainly go away, but guess what's going to happen as soon as you start ramping it up again. So we're always about continue to poke, but sometimes you just poke too much at the same spot, change it up slightly, keep poking. And then what's really important, especially when we're working with clients, we need to let them know that when that original spot calms down, we can certainly revisit it, right? We don't need to avoid it altogether. So I always tell people, Hey, this hurts right now. We're going to try it and do, we're going to do an incline bench for the next four to six weeks. And then after four to six weeks, we can revisit the original to see how it's doing. What about uh, getting into deadlift? Yeah. So, um, let's talk as far as modifications. Okay. So when I, our goal with modifications, and this is the theme of the whole course is only make the smallest modification you need in order to get the desired effect. Mm -hmm. So for example, for the deadlift, 
we don't want to automatically just reduce range of motion if all it took was bracing a little bit harder, right? So we make these small modifications first. So the biggest small modification we can make is purposely changing the pelvis position. So we know that neutral, neutral spine is a range. Um, some people can be a little bit more extended in their neutral range, and some people can be a little bit more flexed. So that's the first thing I will play with. If somebody's dealing with back pain during the deadlifts, some people feel better when they're bent, when they're extended backwards, and some people feel better when they're a little bit rounded forward. And when you can figure out which position their back feels better in, that's what I'm going to bias during the deadlift. So if somebody feels, if somebody hurts when they're really extended, I'm actually going to allow a little bit of lumbar flexion visible during the deadlift. And on the flip side, if somebody hurts with that lumbar flexion, I'm going to cue more of an arch during the deadlift. So making these subtle changes, um, the other thing would be switching variations. A lot of times it's the conventional deadlift that makes people, they get sensitized and back pain. You don't need to go home and lie down on the couch. You can tell them, Hey, that's okay. Um, let's try a sumo deadlift today. So more often than not, people can tolerate sumo deadlifts when they have back pain with conventional, then we can just start going down the line. Hey, if that doesn't work, let's try a trap bar deadlift. If that doesn't work, let's try a barbell RDL. So we have a whole spectrum of hinging, um, where we make those small, subtle changes in pelvic position first, and then we can change the variation next. You know, it, it just dawned on me too, is, you know, even in a lot of the education that a lot of people go through, whether it's through college or even their advanced, not, not advanced search, but just whatever their baseline stuff is, nobody teaches so much of this stuff, like really. Oh. And, and, you know, I would argue the brace, something that you mentioned a couple of times is the bracing and, and how often that is not taught, whether it's in a bench press, whether it's in a deadlift mm -hmm. squat or any of the movements, you know, it's, it's the dreaded, I call it the, the pull your belly button in towards your spine cue that, you know, I get, but I, I, I hate at the same time Yeah. versus, versus the bracing. W would you mind just spending a, a second or two, just talking about the importance of bracing and what the proper way to do that is? Yeah. So if we talk about bracing in the scope of the barbell lifts, the way we teach it is by doing the Valsalva maneuver. So the Valsalva maneuver is a forced exhale against a closed glottis. So taking a big breath and holding it. And that's the exact cue we give. We don't want to overcomplicate this if we don't need to. So my cue is take a big breath and hold it for the entire lift. No breathing out on the way up, no breathing uh, in on the way down. The reason why this breathing was taught in school, the way I was schooled with like, and it's still in some textbooks, breathe up, the breathing during the lift is that they claim that the Valsalva maneuver, Valsalva maneuver or breath holding under loads is inherently dangerous. But when it really comes down to it in the absence of severe cardiovascular disease or like severe brain issues, the Valsalva maneuver is totally safe. And believe it or not, if you're lifting loads at 80% or heavier, it's unavoidable. I always say, ask somebody that has never lifted a weight before. Hey, help me move this couch. What strategy do you think they're what breathing strategy? Do you think they're going to use? They're going to take a big breath and hold it yeah. because that's what maximizes intra-abdominal pressure. That's what maximizes core stiffness. And that's, what's going to get all of our core muscles going 360 degrees, um, is as opposed to what people think bracing is, is just arching. 
right? You get into the deadlift and instead of taking a big breath and holding it and feeling it in your entire midsection, they're just arching their low back as hard as they can. So now they're relying on all of their lumbar extensors and not really getting their whole core going. So take a big breath and hold it. That's what we're looking for. Um, with when we're breathing, when we're breathing during the barbell lifts, can, can you spend a second on the whole, pull your belly button in towards your spine? Yeah. And, I mean, because I, I, I know, like I've read a lot of research on Hodges, Hull and Hides that yep. are the people that kind of came up with that. And what blows me away is it's so commonly used. Um, but yet that cue, according to Hodges, Hull and Hides was more of a cue used in a upright, like on a lying position or, or, you know, prone or supine lying on the ground to just reactivate never mm-hmm. was really intended to my knowledge of what I understood to be used when you're loaded in an upright position. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't. So, and a lot of the research we, and me as a clinician and all of the people that I network with, we're actually moving completely away from the pull the belly button into the spine. The whole idea of pulling the be- belly button into the spine was to activate the transverse abdominis, right? Because we saw in people with back pain that Hodges back in the day saw that um, when people with back pain, their transverse abdominis like activated like a few milliseconds later. Mm-hmm. But when we really zone out, now we see this is a whole rabbit hole I could go down, but I'm going to keep <laughs> it short here. We even see with people with back pain, if you compare general exercise to all kinds of exercises with the pulling the belly button in, you get the same outcomes. So there's no difference in outcomes between pulling the belly belly button in, sorry, and uh, just general exercise. So we're actually moving away from that because we, when it comes to heavy barbell movements, we, in my opinion, we don't really need to be focusing on trying to activate the TA because it's going to be activated anyway with a Valsalva. I think the whole activate the TA transverse abdominus is starting to fall by the wayside. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, like I said, down the rabbit hole, we can go. Um, the one last thing that we didn't talk about is just a, a squat, a couple of tweaks on the squat. I think the biggest thing with the squat is changing foot position mm-hmm. big time. So um, there's a lot of smart people out there who say that everybody needs to squat with their feet forward. And to that, I would just respectfully disagree because we all have different bony anatomies. Some people have uh, different hip structures for somebody that's highly retroverted in the hip. If you try and put them into a feet forward, narrow stance, they're not going to be able to get to depth and it's going to pinch their hips off. I'm one of them. I have two highly retroverted hips. So if you ask me to squat to parallel with a narrow stance, toes forward, I actually get hip pain right in the hole. But the second I widen my stance and spin my feet out just a little bit, hundred percent pain-free. And I think it has to do with just giving trainers the permission to explore different squat stances with their clients. Because if somebody has knee or hip pain with a squat, that is the number one first thing I'm looking at is we're going to shimmy those feet around. I'll be like, all right, Mr. Jones, sorry, that hurt your hip, but that's okay. We have some options. I want you to try that same exercise, but just widen your feet and turn your toes out a little bit more. And let me know how that feels. And it might feel great. It might feel worse. And that's okay. Because then we maybe try it, move the stance in adjusting the feet foot flare and stance width. those two variables, in my opinion, are the biggest variables we can change to change knee and hip pain during squats. That's awesome. And, and again, everybody out there, this is just gold because you don't, you don't get this in most places. You don't hear any of this. So uh, fantastic. 
a couple other things I'd like to discuss, and then uh, we'll wrap up and make sure everybody knows where to go to get more information. You have something that I read as I was going through some of the coursework was the RPE scale and how you mm-hmm. use the RPE scale to to help gauge, you know, obviously the intensity or or the the workload that you're doing in a given day in these particular lists. Would you mind explaining that and you know how that works and how you use it? Because obviously most people think RPE as it more relates to more of a cardiovascular exercise yeah. than more of a resistance training uh, exercise. Yeah. So I'll start this with there is a big push in the fitness industry for exercise as medicine. And I am a thousand percent down with that. But if we're going to look at exercise as medicine, we need to start being more cognizant of the dosage, right? So let's say somebody was put on blood pressure medication and they have side effects. What is the first thing that physician is going to do? Are they going to scrap the medication altogether? No, they're going to see if they can adjust the dosage first. So that's what we need to look at exercise more. A lot of these injuries are, just a result of doing too much, too fast, too soon after doing too little for too long, right? So one way that we can really zone in on making sure that we're using an optimal intensity with our clients is using the rate of the the RPE scale, which stands for rating of perceived exertion. I learned the RPE scale in PT school, which was the Borg scale, which is a scale of six to 20, where somebody gets on a treadmill and then they start running and you ask them, Hey, on a scale of six to 20, how difficult is this for you? Then they usually give you a blank, blank stare and they go, uh, 14, right? <laughs> and it's supposed to correlate with heart rate, right? If they say 14, they're supposedly working out at 140 beats a minute. What the strength community did in the early 2000s was say, why don't we just make this scale one to 10? So to preface this, I did not invent RPE, but I am working on trying to popularize the use of the zero to 10 RPE scale in both rehab loading and and, and in the gym. So basically after a client, let's take a client who does a set of five on squats, they complete the set. Then after they completed it, you as the trainer, ask them on a scale of one to 10, how difficult was that 10 out of 10 means it was the hardest exercise they've ever done. And they could not have done another rep, even if they tried a nine out of 10 means it was really hard, but if I had to, I could have done one more. And then it just goes down the line. Eight out of 10 means you could have done two more. Seven out of 10 means you could have done three more. And where I'm going with this is for the basic barbell lifts, you don't need to train to failure consistently to reap the benefits of hypertrophy and strength. So when we get to the slide in the lecture, I always say, if you're going to pay attention to any slide, pay attention to this one. And it's that the majority of the barbell lifts, squat, deadlift, bench, overhead press, you name it, your big multi-joint compound movements should be done in the RPE seven to 8.5 range, meaning that it is okay. And even desirable to have your clients stop about two reps shy of failure on average on the majority of work. So basically if I'm a physical therapist and somebody comes to me with knee pain during squats, and I find out that they're taking all of their squats to failure. I'm not changing a single, I'm not modifying anything else other than the dosage and the programming. And I'm going to have them stop two reps shy of failure. And I think this is low hanging fruit that is often like, it's just overlooked. We want to, we want to add things. We want to add that one bulletproof exercise we found on Instagram that is for sure going to heal this person's back. No, let's scale back and realize, okay, this person's just doing too much and they're not 
being, they're not, they're having trouble adapting to it. So that's how we use RPE. Um, a little bit of a learning curve there in the beginning, yeah. right? Where, um, but that's where the client trainer collaboration can really go a long way where people that are new to RPE are going to have a tendency to overrate it, right? They'll do because if you're a beginner, everything's difficult. Everything's difficult. They'll do a set of five of squats that that last rep will still be just as speedy as the first one. And then the trainee might be like, oh yeah, that was an RPE nine. And the coach can give some feedback and say, hey, look, no, that last rep, just as quick as the first one was probably more of an RPE five. Oh, okay. So then you get this and it helps with that um, relationship, building a relationship between the coach and the client is helping them understand RPE so that then they can really and um, use the, utilize the benefits of auto-regulation, which is what RPE is. That's awesome. You know, it, one of the things too, in, in just I've literally in the last four months tested out almost 180 different trainers in their live session experience. And what I found is that communication, like the, the really good in session experiences, the communication is, is diligent. It's intentful. It's a bit of building rapport, but then a bit of bringing notice to the movements that they're doing, giving the encouragement of look at how you did here versus the last time. And I think this RPE scale is so powerful in being able to communicate within the session in a way that the train the, the client actually builds mm-hmm. value with working with the person because they're not going to get that on their own, you know, and, and this bit of testing. Was it really there or was it not? So I think, you know, it, we take for granted some of that stuff when it comes into the power of retention of clients and and you know the the whole in session experience. And I think that is a, a huge aspect that you guys teach that can automatically yeah. improve that. Yeah. And it's another way to really like keep that client retention and keep clients motivated on bad days, right? Yeah. Because not every day is going to be a phenomenal day in the gym for a client. And if we're always working off of percentage-based training and one day a client can't hit their 80%, and that could lead to like this, oh man, like I knew it, I'm heading backwards. But if we're all, if we're using the concept of auto-regulation, RPE auto-adjusts for the level of fatigue of that client for that day. Maybe you're working out with somebody on a Monday morning and maybe they were out late Sunday night, didn't get as much sleep. Maybe they're stressed at work. That's okay. We're still going to work up to an RPE eight on Monday. The weight might not be as heavy, but the intent and the exertion will still be there because you're still working two reps shy of failure. The other thing too, it brings up is, is tracking diligently tracking those two things. Hey, you came in, you didn't sleep. You went out last night, you, you know, your RPE on the same amount was, you know, a nine today versus it normally being a four or whatever the case yeah. may be, you know? So God, that's, that, that's powerful. Well, you know, we could go on and on and, and I really appreciate everything that you've done. What I would love for you to do is, is share a little bit more about what people can get within your courses that you have and explaining, I know you have a virtual, you have a live, but you know, high level, what, what other things besides the stuff that we talked about in more depth, will they get? And then where will they obviously go to be able to find that stuff? Yeah. So our big offering right now is the two day live barbell rehab method certification course. We are offering this course all over the United States, starting to scale to Europe. I just got back from Italy. I taught in Europe, amazing experience. Uh, But we're really scaling this across the country right now um, from West coast to East coast. It's a two day live course where we teach 
personal trainers and physical therapists, how to coach and modify the barbell lifts for people with pain. But what's really cool about this two-day live course is not only do we teach the barbell lifts and how to coach and modify them, we tease in other variations as well. How do you, how do you progress and regress a lunge? How do you coach a lunge for somebody with knee pain? Because that lunge is going to look a lot different than somebody with hip pain. So we go through the lunge pattern. How do you coach and modify pull-ups, pull-downs, seated rows? So we go through that in the live course as well. And at the live course, we also do a lot of hands-on work where you can actually get under the barbell and work with each other in small groups and also get instructor feedback. So that's our two, go ahead. Yeah. One of the things, and when you say barbell lifts, we talked obviously about squat, deadlift, and bench, but what other barbell lifts do you go through in that live course? Um, We go through the overhead press and talk about different strategies of how to get a barbell up overhead, which ones you may want to use for people with back pain, which ones you may want to use for people with neck pain. So there's different strategies for that. Um, And then we talk about lunges, which can be barbell forward or reverse lunges. Um, and we are actually going to be adding in hip thrust here, uh, during June, we're actually not going to be teaching. We're going to have a little bit of a break here between July and August, because we're going to further after teaching this course for over a year and a half, we've gotten tons of feedback. And the number one feedback was add the hip thrust. (laughs) So we're going to add the hip thrust and talk about modifications for back pain for that. Using a barbell. Using a barbell, yes. Yeah, awesome, great. And then you do have a virtual course too that is on demand. Uh, can you? Would you mind explaining that and what? You yeah. Did from there? So we have four virtual courses actually. Um, the main one is the Barbell Rehab Workshop online course. So I like to call the Barbell Rehab Workshop online course the crash course version of the two day live course. So the two day live course is fifteen hours. Our online Barbell Rehab Workshop online course is seven hours. That covers just the barbell lifts. It doesn't have any of the accessory work in it. And obviously, since it's virtual, there's no hands on learning. Um, so for people that may not be interested in a full weekend and would prefer to learn from home, I would highly recommend the Barbell Rehab Workshop online course. And then we also have three specialty courses as well uh, for folks that want to learn more about specific situations. One of them is called Strength Training the Post-Operative Client. I made this specifically for personal trainers who are routinely working with people that are right out of physical therapy with a hip replacement, with a knee replacement, because the thing is, insurances just won't cover rehab for an entire year after a hip replacement, after a knee replacement. So if you're a personal trainer, I want to show you how to safely work with somebody that had a knee replacement eight weeks ago, somebody that had a rotator cuff repair four months ago. So we go through in that course, all of the different surgeries, how the surgeon does them. And more importantly, how do you scale exercise? Then we have low back pain fundamentals, where I give you the latest updated evidence on low back pain self-management. And finally, our newest one is unique considerations for the female barbell athlete, where we, as we show trainers, how do you work with somebody that is having trouble maintaining urinary continence during lifting? Because that's a whole nother subject that we could go down with a lot of women are dealing with urinary incontinence with heavy lifting. So we decided to create a course on that and how to really optimize the management of your female clients. 
That's fantastic. And you know, the, the website and we'll have it in the notes is barbellrehab.com. I uh, also has Instagram at, at barbell rehab and Facebook as well. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. And, and I look forward to potentially bigger partnerships and, and even more, more times on the, on the course, obviously there's a lot that you offer that I think is so, so needed, uh, in the industry, uh, let alone specifically for us. So, um, if anyone's interested, please go there. Obviously, as as always with the Lifetime Trainers, um, we might be able to offer you a, a slight discount um, if you're working at Lifetime and you're a trainer at Lifetime. So thank you guys so much. Thank you, uh, Dr. Mike. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for having me on, Jason. All right, man. Have a great day. 